I think it's helpful for you to know that the English word thanksgiving in the New Testament is a translation of a Greek word, eucharistia. Eucharistia. The core of eucharistia is obviously charis. And charis is the Greek word for grace. So the, the basis of the word thanksgiving is actually the word for grace. And the simple lesson that I want to try and share with you that you can hopefully keep in mind is this, that an understanding of grace is absolutely necessary for an appropriate response of thanksgiving. Grace and thanksgiving are inextricably bound up in each other. Now, with that in mind, I want to read to you just a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First letter to the Corinthians, the 15th chapter, Paul is rehearsing the basics of the gospel. And of course, he then begins, in in rehearsing the basics of the gospel, he then begins to talk about the resurrection. And then he talks about the proofs for the resurrection, one of which, of course, is the numerous post-resurrection appearances. And he lists a number of them. And then you'll find that he says in verse 7 of the 15th chapter, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as the one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now you'll notice in that 10th verse that he refers to the grace of God three times in one sentence. And I want to identify those three points for you. First of all, he says, I am what I am because of the grace of God. I want to suggest to you that means that grace is all about a divine attitude. Paul was able to say, I am what I am today because of the attitude with which God addressed me, the attitude with which he has dealt with me. But then secondly, he says, this gracious attitude, this divine attitude that has changed my life has had a profound impact on me. In fact, it has become a powerful motivating factor. His grace was not without effect. I can prove it. I worked harder than all of them. The grace of God now is not, he's not speaking about it in terms of a divine attitude. Now it is a dynamic stimulus. It is a powerful motivating factor in his life. But then having said that, he thinks to himself, oop, I've said I worked harder than all the others. Now some of those others might read this and be offended. So he said, but it was not I. It was the grace of God that worked alongside me. And here, of course, the grace of God now is seen as the empowering or the daily enabling that allows him to be what he has been motivated to become. So there are the three things. The grace of God, a divine attitude. The grace of God, a dynamic stimulus. The grace of God, a daily enabling. 
Now notice what Paul says here. By the grace of God, I am what I am. When you study your Bible, you read it, you think about it. You ask it questions and you look for answers in the text. I've told you that a thousand times. So when I read, by the grace of God, I am what I am, what's the obvious question that comes to mind? Well, what are you? What what are you, Paul? And we've come across two very striking answers here. The first thing that comes very clearly from the text is this. Paul is claiming to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. The whole tone of the letter, the first Corinthian letter, as we call it, is the tone of an apostle speaking forcefully, authoritatively to the church that he has founded. Now, in, in that very simple sentence, you've got the idea of an apostle. An apostle was a person who was uniquely called and equipped by God to do a unique task. The apostles were called, along with the prophets, the foundation of the church. They took the Christian gospel to places where it had never, ever been voiced before. They established churches in the name of Jesus Christ where it had never happened before. They were uniquely called. They were uniquely equipped. They were uniquely empowered. They were uniquely gifted. And they were uniquely authorized. In short, these apostles were a very small group of elite people and they were utterly unique. And Saul of Tarsus says, and I'm one of them. I'm one of them. Now he, de- he says he's very humbly. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. Nobody else would agree with that evaluation, but that's how he looked at himself. But he's an apostle nevertheless. The second thing that he says about himself, however, is a surprise. For at the end of verse 8, He says that he appeared to me also, that is the risen Christ, and he describes himself as one abnormally born. Now that's a rather ambiguous statement. One abnormally born. I checked on a number of other versions of the Bible and they're all equally ambiguous. And none of them, as far as I could see, translate literally what Paul said here. And I think the reason for it is that what he said is is a little distasteful. It's a little crude. The word that Paul uses here, that is translated one abnormally born, is the word that would describe the products of an abortion or a miscarriage. In other words, something that you don't even talk about. Something very, very distasteful. Something very, very unpleasant indeed. And incredibly, that is how Paul describes himself. Now, the point of all this is this. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we're asking, well, what are you? And the answer that we get appears to be totally contradictory. On the one hand, he says, I happen to be a member of a very small, very elite, utterly unique group of people called and commissioned and empowered and and authorized by God to be foundational to the work of the church around the world. And uh, at the same time, I am such a creep. I am so bad. 
I am so unworthy that I can't even look at myself in the mirror. So here's a question. Does Paul have a high self-image or a low self-image? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes. How in the world can you have such a high self-image and such a low self-image without being schizophrenic? I'll tell you how. By the grace of God. By the grace of God, I who in myself regard myself as utterly undeserving and utterly unworthy and totally unpleasant and have lived a life contrary to all that God wanted me to do, I, regarding myself in that light, have now incredibly become an apostle. How does somebody there get to here? How does somebody who has lived in the gutter now begin to live in the utter most? And the answer is by the grace of God. What does that mean? It means that God looks upon this person, Saul of Tarsus, with great displeasure and great distaste. What he is doing is anathema as far as God is concerned. He does not like what this guy is doing. He is shaking his fist in the face of God and a holy, righteous God will not tolerate it. And yet he decides to deal with him in a way that this guy does not deserve to be dealt with. He decides to give him that which he would never ever earn if he lives a million years. And he grants to him a position for which he has no warrant whatsoever. And there's nothing in Saul of Tarsus that warrants it. It's all of God. It's grace. It's a divine attitude. Now, let me remind you that the core of Eucharistia, Thanksgiving, is charis, grace. I submit to you, we need to understand grace. Now, preachers, of course, are required to make some application of the theory that they are giving out to you. So now, I've given you all this stuff on Paul. How can I make some application? Can I say to you now, my dear friends, how many of you, think you are like the products of a miscarriage. Very few of you would volunteer that information. If by the same token I said, now I want all those of you who believe that you are apostles uniquely called and gifted and authorized to be foundational to the church, I'd get a very poor response as well. So I wouldn't ask you, do either of these polarities fit you? What I would ask you is this. Do you fit somewhere in between these two polarities? Have you ever thought what you are in yourself in the eyes of God? And have you ever thought of what you can become in the economy of God? Have you ever thought how lowly, how undeserving we are Have you ever thought how we can become what we have never dreamed of for no other reason than God takes hold of the undeserving and gives them what they don't deserve and makes them what they'll never be? 
You see, as we understand these two things, we begin to get a glimmer of what grace is. It's a divine attitude. I think one of the big, big problems we have in our culture is this. We don't understand how holy is the holiness of God. So we don't understand how sinful is the sinfulness of sin. So we don't understand the glory of the glory of grace. These, these are our fundamental problems. And that is why we need so desperately to be pressing on to discover more and more of what God is saying about his own glory and his own holiness and our own intrinsic worthlessness. A number of, of years ago, Jill was in the coffee fellowship here and a gentleman she'd never seen before came and spoke to her. And uh, he said that he'd never been to Allenbrook before, but he'd come to visit his pastor. And, and Jill said, oh, is your pastor visiting here as well? And he said, no, he's here all the time. Oh, she said, what's his name? And he said, his name is Stuart Briscoe. Do you know him? And she said, oh, yes. <laughs> now, I'm not quite sure of the exact tone of voice, the way she said it. I'm sure she said, oh, yes. Not, oh yes. Anyway, she admitted that she knew me. Now she's puzzled. Here's a man who's never been here before, but he says I'm his pastor who he's never met. So she made further inquiries, and she finds out that this gentleman lives in the upper Midwest during the summer, and he's a snowbird in the winter, and he has a condominium down on the Mexican Riviera. And there are about 400 other people in this complex. And he decided that these people needed an opportunity for worship because there was absolutely nothing for them at all. So he found out somehow or other that Telling the Truth Ministries here produced videos of some of the stuff I've been preaching over the years. So he got in touch with, it, with them. I didn't know anything about it. And he managed to get some videos from them. And for the previous four years, every Sunday morning, he had been putting a television on the bar and the people had been sitting in the restaurant and they switch on the video and they watch the video of me preaching and they switch it off and they go home. <laughs> Nothing else. So then he said, and we would like for Pastor Briscoe to come and visit his parish and meet his parishioners. So the next time we were in Mexico, we carved out two or three days and we went over to this gorgeous condominium on the Mexican Riviera and we were swamped with these people, most of them totally unchurched. And they peppered us with questions from morning till night. And there was one lady there, very expensively dressed, very beautifully coiffed, Manners utterly impeccable, absolutely poised. And she says to Jill, Jill, how good do I have to be to go to heaven? That's a good question. How good do I have to be to go to heaven? And Jill was up for it. She said very quietly, Perfect. 
perfect. That opened a can of worms. It does, you know. It does, you know. You will find people in the Western world who will all say, I never claimed to be a saint. I'm not perfect. But the unspoken word is this. But I think I'm good enough. Perfect, no. Good enough, yes. All right? Let me tell you something. God is perfect. Everything he makes is perfect. He made a perfect heaven and a perfect earth and he put in it perfect people. And the perfect people blew it. And the perfect world is a mess. And a perfect God who made a perfect heaven has looked at this mess and said, you people are not going to do to my heaven what you did to my earth. Which makes for a very gloomy reading, doesn't it? And the lady, this beautiful lady, said, well, who then is going to be there? That's another good question. And the answer, of course, is this. Nobody on the basis of their own efforts. Because we'll never be perfect. The only hope is if God can initiate a scheme whereby he can make perfection out of imperfection. If he can make righteousness out of unrighteousness. If he can deal with what is wrong and eradicate it and make people anew. That's the only hope. But he would have to decide to do that. And he did. He did. And it was entirely his decision. It was not predicated on our worth. It was not predicated on our deserts. It was not predicated on our merit. It was predicated on his attitude. Grace. And this is what God does. He reaches down to the most undeserving. And he forgives them for Christ's sake. He starts a work of transformation in them and he imparts to them the righteousness of Christ and they are justified freely by his grace. And it's nothing to do with them. It's everything to do with him. Grace is a divine attitude. Now says the Apostle Paul, his grace that was showered upon me was not ineffectual. No, he said, and I can prove it. I worked harder than all of them. What is he saying? He is saying to understand grace has a profound impact on the person that you become. For when you begin to understand grace... It touches you in the very core of your being. You mean to say, God, you are like that? You mean to say, God, you did that? 
You mean to say you promised me that, God? He said, yes. But I don't deserve it. He said, you got that right. You got that right. It's nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with me. Now, the Latin word for grace is gratia. G-R-A-T-I-A. I did six years of Latin in high school in England. It was compulsory. They said, you'll never understand the English language without a rudimentary knowledge of Latin. I failed it. Latin, not the English language. They said, I failed ignominiously. I needed Latin to understand that. But there's one or two Latin words I've learned, and I've remembered, gratia. Gratia is the Latin word for grace, and gratia is the root word from which we get gratitude. That's right. This is what happens. When you begin to grasp gratia, gratitude grips you. Have you got it? When you begin to grasp gratia, gratitude grips you. And you find welling up inside you what I like to call the gratitude attitude. Now, the gratitude attitude needs an outlet. I can't just say, oh, I have gratitude. I want to express it. How can I show forth my gratitude becomes the question. Well, I wonder if Saul of Tarsus, who had become the Apostle Paul, said that to God. God, I understand gratia. I feel gratitude welling up inside me. I'm, I'm about to burst, but how can I express my gratitude? And uh, God said to him, well, you can be an apostle. Oh, what's that? Well, it means that you'll become a member of a very small elite group of people who will become foundational to the church that I'm going to build around the world. And you'll be uniquely called and you'll be uniquely commissioned and you'll be uniquely gifted and you'll be uniquely authorized, all that stuff. Oh, Paul said, wow, that's wonderful. And uh, you will be the apostle to a very select group of people. Now, immediately, Saul of Tarsus, who says... I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the great teacher of Israel, on a fast track for the top echelons of Judaism. It's obvious what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a pistol to the Jews. And God says, no. You are going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee of the Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, had the attitude of many Jews in those days towards the Gentiles, whom they called Gentile dogs. Gentile dogs. And the most amazing thing happened. Saul of Tarsus says, well, if I'm going to be into this gratia thing, there's going to be some gratitude. And if I'm going to be into gratitude, it's got to find the expression. 
And if I'm going to find expression for my gratitude, it cannot be contrary to what God wants me to do. So God, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll hold my nose and I'll take a deep breath and I'll become the best apostle to the Gentiles you ever heard of. And I'll do it with all my might and I'll do it with all my energy and I'll do it with all my enthusiasm. I'll work harder than all of them. What is he doing? is expressing the impact of grace. For you see, grace is not just a divine attitude, it's a dynamic stimulus. Thanksgiving is the daily attitude that produces a way of living. Gratitude, attitude. Thirdly, Grace is a divine attitude. Grace is a dynamic stimulus. Grace is a daily enabling. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you say, you know, I really want to be obedient. I really do want to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm really eager to express my gratitude, but I run out of gas. I don't, I don't seem to be able to do it. I, I, I seem so, so weak and ineffectual. Well, I've got some good news for you. The Apostle Paul says this, it's not I, you know, I'm working harder than all of them. I am highly motivated by grace now, but you've got to understand something that I am motivated to do it and I'm doing it, but it's not me. It's the grace of God that works alongside me. Here's the great good news. Now let's go back to that word grace again for a minute, charis. If you add add M-A on the end of charis, you've got charisma. And that's a word that sneaked into the English language, didn't it? Charisma. (laughs) When we meet somebody and they've got it, but we don't know what it is, we say, ah, that's charisma. That's charisma. It's some sort of ethereal, ephemeral thing that floats out there. You either got it or you don't. Charisma. You say, well, we can do better than that. Charisma, actually, in the Greek, simply, it means gift. Gift. Because grace, graces. Grace gives. Gift, grace. They're first cousins. Charis, charisma. The plural is charismata. Here's the good news. When you find yourself caught up with the grace of God... And he's taken the most undeserving and he's made you an heir of God and a joint heir of Christ and all those other wonderful things. And you say, how in the world did I get here? And I'm so grateful and I want to express my gratitude. I want to live a life of glad, energetic, enthusiastic service. I'm ready to go, God, but I'm running out of gas. He says, I know. That's why I'll give you the gift. And you say, which gift? Oh, he said, I will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Every born again believer 
is born again of the Spirit of God. Every person born again of the Spirit of God is indwelt by the Spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead. There is your charisma. There is your gracing. There is your gifting. There is your empowering. There is your daily enabling. It's charis, giving charisma. It is grace, gifting you. That is why, you see, we are to nurture the life of the Spirit. For he it is who enables us for daily living. But that's not all. For when the Holy Spirit, God's precious gift to you, comes into your life, he brings his gifts with him. The ideal gifts ideally suited for the ideal situation for which he has made you ideally to serve him. Right now we have electric power in this building. The electricity is driving that little clock over there. Electricity is driving that light. And the two functions are totally different. Electricity is driving the speaking system. It's producing something entirely different. Electricity is involved in the heating system. That's something entirely different. Same power, different applications. Here's the good news. The grace of God is a daily enabling, giving you the power of the Spirit and the unique applications of his gifting. Daily. So this is how it works. Grace reaches down to you, undeserving as you are, and gives you what you'll never earn. Grace brings to bear in your heart and mind an understanding of this, and gratitude overflows. Gratitude wants to express itself in obedience, but now grace comes to the rescue and empowers you to live a fruitful, obedient life. It's all grace. For grace is the divine attitude that becomes the dynamic stimulus that becomes the daily enabling. The only thing I can say is amazing grace. Amazing grace. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will continually educate us about the holiness of your holiness so that we might rightly understand the sinfulness of our sinfulness in order that we might become more and more appreciative of the glory of grace. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that we may begin to understand more and more the sheer beauty and wonder of Christ, who he is and what he has done for those of us who, like Paul, are utterly unworthy of your unmerited favor. We pray, Lord, that this would not be simply an academic appreciation of theological truth, but that our appreciation of grace would well up 
in an attitude of gratitude that looks desperately for a channel to express itself and finds it in a life of energetic, enthusiastic obedience. And thank you, dear Lord, that you alone can empower us for this life. And we pray that we might draw upon all the resources of grace and live in the good of them. For we pray in Christ's name. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this day and henceforth. Amen.